Are there any uh, particular habits of uh, monosexuals that uh, distinguish them? They tend to watch a lot of TV. They tend to listen to a lot of radio. Well, it seems that a lot of monosexuals like to listen to NPR stories from 1988. It's kind of quirky, but they seem to like it, as do I, of course. I'm Carrie Thompson, and we asked many more questions than we answer on this month's Playback. Why does love pester us so? Who started it anyway? Was it just some sort of dirty trick that kind of caught on? That's comedian and artist Linda Berry with a new spin on Cupid, that icon who she describes as the red baby with the arrow. We also got us some borscht belt fun with comedian Jackie Mason. He talks about bad stand-up with Terry Gross. If you hear a joke you never heard before and it stinks, you're wasting the guy's time and the guy is getting nauseous and he wants to throw a chair at you. Is this a way of saying that, that, that you've been a psycho case yourself and that's right. why you're a comedian? That's right. That might be why he's a comedian, and it's also why we love the 80s. So let's get this month started with some breaking news from Robert Siegel. Some new sociological findings based on exhaustive personal interviews, and some impersonal ones too, has brought to light a new trend in the social lives of Americans, passing time alone but with commitment. Writer Bill Thomas calls it monosexuality. Well, I think a, a fellow in San Francisco, Bob, it's not his real name, but um, he put it best, I think, when he said, I, I, Bill, I kind of go with myself. And that summed it up to me. Why? Why this increase in people who, as you say, go with themselves? It's a great way, I guess. There's another, another fellow, Ted, that's not his real name either, in, in San Diego put it. He said it's a, it's a great way to be your own best friend, and, and you never have to dress for dates. But what did monosexuals do on dates? There are monosexual bars. Now, there are several uh, monosexual bars on the West Coast. I hear that one's going to open in New York. They, uh, they may go in there, uh, go to a bar, sit down, listen to, some, listen to maybe a Frank Sinatra song, a Tony Bennett uh, song, have a beer, spend some quiet time by themselves, and, and leave. They don't cause much trouble. They never get into arguments, and... Uh, they have a pretty good time, I'm told. Are there any uh, I mean, particular habits of, uh, of monosexuals that uh, distinguish them otherwise from uh, the rest of the population? They tend to watch a lot of TV. They tend to listen to a lot of radio, actually. Probably hundreds, thousands of them listening to this show right now. They tend to, uh, to spend a lot, of, a lot of quality time at home with themselves. It's a new way to, to find yourself. Uh, Jill, a monosexual, and not, that's not her name either. You've gone out of your way, really, not to uh, these, identify the people whom you interviewed in your field. No, work. no. I, I, first of all, it's not it's not how I work. But uh, most of them, uh, most of them, did not want to be uh, identified by their real names, and that's not her name. Now they've they've given you anecdotes, but I mean, well, this is a subject. It's very private, and mm -hmm. I don't know why people would necessarily be very candid about their homosexuality. Well, a, a lot of people, you know, we're coming out of a decade now, uh, the '70s, and perhaps into the early '80s, when people were were trying to define love. Uh, a uh, fellow talked to me in Texas, Tim, uh, which isn't his name either. He said, you know, he thought love was a, was a search for the one perversion that, that really explains how you feel about someone. And he mentioned to me that he and his wife had filled their bedroom with, uh, with a dozen mirrors, and all it got him was a view of his wife's headache from 12 different angles. And he, he searched and searched and thought and thought and uh, decided after a while that uh, he was a monosexual and moved out and took everything he owned with him. That's writer Bill Thomas talking to NPR's Robert Siegel.
And now, reflections on a more complicated kind of love, the kind that usually involves another person. Why does love pester us so? Who started it anyway? Was it just some sort of dirty trick that kind of caught on? If it is your time, love will track you like a cruise missile. It starts looking for you the second you say, no, not right now, and that's when you'll get it for sure. But the minute you want it, really want it, you'll find yourself alone on a greased pole to hell. That's one of the best definitions I've ever heard. <laughs> little something for everyone there. Yeah, just something for everybody. Linda Berry is a cartoonist and author of the books Big Ideas and Everything in the World. She writes a lot about modern romance and therefore seemed like the ideal person to answer all those questions about love that people carry around for years and never resolve. We found the questions just waiting in a few Washington bars. I want to know, why is a first date so horrible? They're awful. They're awful. If you go out to dinner, you can't order a salad. And that's how, oh, it's awful. The lettuce gets stuck in your teeth, when right? Your and things fly off the plate. <laughs> well, I think uh, the most promising kind of date would be one that parallels the situation of, you know, that one movie where Sidney Poitier is handcuffed to this white bigot and they're prisoners and they escape from this prison and they have to go handcuffed together through the swamps of Louisiana? I mean, I think going through some kind of grueling, wet, muddy event that's inescapable and you're handcuffed together would let you know right away if the relationship is going to work. And it would, you know, you wouldn't have to make small talk. And I think that they should actually create facilities like this, like health clubs, that you go on your first date. Then you spend like, you know, two days fighting off nature together. And then you can know by the end if this is um, the person you want to stay with or not. <laughs> A word, whenever people talk about romance and love. Mm -hmm. A word that comes up all the time is chemistry. What does chemistry mean? I mean, is it some sort of sexual fantasy or... I mean, I've seen a lot of relationships where it's all, all neurosis. I think chemistry is the astounding and deft human ability to gaze across a crowded room and instantly find the one person there who is the most like your mother. Even though it, it takes... Um, from seven to ten years to, to actually find that that's true. It's sort of an ability to locate the person who can bring you the greatest possible amount of misery. And uh, how does lust fit into that? One of, one of our people wanted to know if chemistry really was lust. Doesn't sound like that's what you think it is. Well, no, I think lust is definitely um, is sort of the wiggling worm on the hook. <laughs> <laughs> the hook of love. <laughs> I mean, I think <laughs> lust is there, but what attracts us to someone sexually, I think, has more to do with, with neuroses. And I think that there's a real nice sort of ecosystem involved in it, that you pick somebody kind of who is going to fulfill your worst fears about them and yourself, thus allowing you to either work out the problem or kind of move on, kind of like those video games that have increasing degrees of, of uh, difficulty, even though it's the same game. And that if you can actually get to the bottom of it, without getting a brain tumor, you know, then you can, you can have a good relationship and enjoy your last maybe two years on Earth, you know, happily, because I think it takes about 60 years to be able to achieve this. Maybe Linda could deal with uh, some of the phoniness. I think a lot of that has to do with first dates or especially people, you know, meeting in bars because they're generally meeting for the first time. They're trying to impress people. Now, let me just tell you, this is a bartender. Well, um... I think the question that every person wants to know on the first date with someone is, is who is getting the better deal? And people are phony 
or, or they lie in an attempt to raise the stakes. I mean, I think that you're phony or you lie in direct proportion to how much of a gap you perceive between your, your miserable, worthless self and the other person's kind of extreme desirability. And so it's kind of the stakes keep getting higher, and, it, and, uh, and then there's a crash like on Wall Street. Well, we have a question that comes right out of this conversation. You know, in relationships, you know, women are very honest. We're emotional, but we're honest. And a man, even if you catch him red-handed, he will always deny it to the nth degree. He'll lie. And I'd like to know why. So. Um, well, okay, like you learn in school, right, that the two instinctual responses to fear are, are fight or flight. But with men, there's a third option that's sort of built in, and, and the third option is is or lie. It's either fight, flight, or lie. And men lie because they are uh, afraid of women yelling at them. Um, I think the real question is why do they keep doing things that they have to lie about? And uh, I think the answer to that is that men are pack animals. They, they move in packs. There's a momentum of the pack, and they kind of have to do what the, the pack leader, you know, kind of exemplifies for them. And a lot of times a man's pack leader is... Um, is Rod Stewart or uh, David Lee Roth. Hey, Linda, do you think we're being too hard on men here? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. That, wait a minute, I'm, I'm using my third option of fight or flight or lie. No, I don't think we're being too hard on men. I, th I don't think the, the men ask questions that we're being very hard on women. We did have, though, we did have three men do something that none of the women we asked uh, to pose <laughs> questions to you did. And they said... I don't have any questions. Do you have any questions? I have all the answers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, poor men. Okay, we have, I think we have one last one for you here. Okay. Why is it that you never fall in love when you want to fall in love, and you always fall in love when you don't want to fall in love, like when you're ready to go off to school or you're ready to move to a new city? That's a good question. You always fall in love then. It's always the worst time. Hello. I think that the reason is is basically because because Cupid is a monster from hell. The, you know they call this little creature that we draw and see a lot around Valentine's Day with the arrow. This little flying baby, flying red baby or pink baby who's shooting you with arrows. They call it Cupid and they surround it with hearts. So we think that this is actually a, a nice spirit. But if a red baby flew into the room and aimed an arrow at you, you would know instantly that there is there's some kind of malicious intent. And I think that the fact that we fall in love right when we're ready to leave for some place or split up or right when we fall in love with somebody else is an indication that, that these kind of flunky imps are active. Linda, happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to you, too, and watch out for them flying babies. What is this thing called love? This funny thing called love. Just who can solve its mystery? Why should it make a Now for a star turn with comedian Jackie Mason.
My guest is comic Jackie Mason. He made her major comeback last year when his one-man show, The World According to Me, became one of the hottest tickets on Broadway. The show is currently in hiatus while Mason is in Los Angeles, starring in the film Caddyshack 2. The World According to Me has generated more attention than anything Mason has done since the early 60s, when he made frequent appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show. Jackie Mason comes from a long line of rabbis, and to fulfill his father's wishes, he entered the rabbinate as a young man. The nightclubs where he later established himself as a comic took him far away from the synagogue, but on the other hand, a lot of his material is still about being Jewish. He does a lot of self-deprecating Jewish humor, and he also gets in Gentile, Polish, black, Puerto Rican, and wife jokes. I spoke with Jackie Mason when his show was still on Broadway. Here's an excerpt of his monologue on the differences between Jews and Gentiles. A Jew's whole life is absolutely different than a Gentile's. Fascinating to notice that a Jew can't even fix a car. Did you ever notice that? <laughs> he cannot fix anything. A Gentile car breaks down in two seconds. They run to the car, top of the car. <laughs> they clock, they hop, it becomes an airplane. <laughs> there he goes. <laughs> a Jewish car breaks down. You always hear the same thing. It stopped. <laughs> And the wife always says, it's your fault. <laughs> and he says, I know what it is, it's in the hood. Where's the hood? I don't remember there was a hood. Takes a Jew three hours to open the hood, then he looks under the hood. Hey, is it busy here? <laughs> then he makes a move and she hollers, watch out, you'll hike yourself. I'm not making it up. Go into any Gentile home. Any Gentile home is a workshop. Why is that? The whole house is a workshop. Every place you go in a Gentile home, they clop me, hack me. They take you right to the basement and they clop them, they hack them, they fix it, they bang you, they clang A Jewish house is a museum. The whole house is a museum. The Gentiles are clopping and the Jews are clopping. Every Gentile, as soon as you say hello, he's fixing and building. The whole house was rebuilt and refixed. The toilet was once a chair. The living room was once a big pot table. The bedroom was once a kitchen. This was some milk. The furnace was once a toilet. This was some... The whole lobby was in the lobby. This was some milk. The wall was in the... T this was in Pittsburgh. Everything was someplace else. Go into a Jewish house. Nothing was ever fixed. Everything was imported, exported. In a Jewish house, everything is coming and going. It's... It's a whole shipping department, the whole house. No matter what you see, this is nothing. Wait till you see what I'm getting. Jackie Mason, you come from an Orthodox family of rabbis. Were you exposed to comics or to nightclubs when you were growing up? Not only was I exposed to comics, I never even heard of comics. I didn't know there was such a thing as comedians when I was growing up. I thought when I was funny around the table in the house, I thought I was the only person who knew how to be funny in this whole world. I never saw comedians because you're always in the yeshiva, which is a Hebrew academy to study to become a rabbi. And the only thing I saw was rabbis in front of me, teaching me to keep my mouth shut, not to talk, not to say something funny, not to talk aloud, not to talk at all, not to move, not to turn, just to sit and pass away right in front of people. That's all you're taught. It's a very rigid kind of an atmosphere. And uh, certainly nightclubs was a very, the most distant thing from my life it's as far as... Uh, it's like mining for uranium. You didn't see it in the neighborhood. Do you remember? You know, uranium exists, but you don't expect to bump into it. Do you remember the first time you went to a nightclub and saw a comic? As a matter of fact, the first time I was ever in a nightclub where a comic was performing, it was me. 
You're kidding. I was the, uh, I never saw I never was in the inside of a nightclub. I, I knew of a nightclub from movies by that time because I saw a few pictures uh, Humphrey Bogart would go into a nightclub so I knew what it meant. But I was never in, actually personally inside of a nightclub until my, I myself played a nightclub. What happened was that I was in the mountains in the Catskills and I was telling jokes and I was a big hit among the Jewish people in a small hotel. And the next thing I knew, somebody wanted to take a chance with me in a nightclub. And that was my first appearance at a nightclub and it's the first time I was ever in there. So you kind of had to make it up as you went along as far as what your act was going to be like. You had nobody to pattern it on. I had nobody to pattern it on at the beginning except what I thought uh, sounded funny to me that made people laugh. And I found that making people laugh came very natural and easy to me. It's funny. You, you've said that you became a rabbi because you didn't want to disobey your father, and your father wanted you to become a rabbi. And it's, it's, uh, it's ironic to think of someone like you who's built their career on irreverence to be afraid of going against their father. Well, the truth of the matter is it was very difficult for me psychologically to give up the religion and the rabbinate and everything that religion represented because I knew that my father lived for nothing but this. It was a history going back a million years. It's like the king of England when he got off the throne. Everybody else says, so what if you're not a king? There's a lot of people who are not kings. Thank God you're not, so go for a walk, keep yourself busy. But to him not to be a king was a, was a difficult problem because he was born to be a king. In the same sense, I was born to be a rabbi. As I was born to be a rabbi more than he was to be a king. That guy had no troubles compared to me. <laughs> he only had countries involved. I had a, a mother and a father sitting in front of me, getting nauseous every five minutes, passing away from the misery. Did, did you learn anything about timing and working an audience when you were delivering sermons as a rabbi? As a matter of fact, that's a good question. You know, it's hard to believe that you're going to get a good question on a show like this. But this is a very good question. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I hope you noticed that. I noticed you're not laughing when I said that. I didn't know how to take it. <laughs> because this is a very incisive question. Very few people think of asking and a question that has that much insight. I'm proud of that question. I'm so proud of the question, I forgot the answer. <laughs> anyway, the point is... <laughs> the point is that uh, there is a the very great similarity between a rabbi delivering sermons and a comedian telling jokes. Because if a rabbi is strictly serious on, this, on the pulpit, he'll lose his whole audience in an hour because people don't really go to a, to a congregation or a, a, a religious house of worship to practice religion. They go there to practice everything but religion. It's a community center of activity. It's the only place where the Jewish people get together, and they're there for different reasons than religion. Ostensibly, the pretense, it's a religious house of worship, but everybody's there for everything but that. They're comparing coats, they're comparing jackets, they're comparing bank books. Who has a bigger diamond than who? Who had a baby? Who could have had a baby? Who had a baby that was married, that never got married, that forgot to get married? It's a place where they gossip about each other's lives because it's the only place they get together. It's like Gentiles have a bar, Jews have a temple. <laughs> so, so uh, and the Jewish temple becomes the place where, where you gossip about everything. And when the rabbi, when he starts preaching to you about religion, he's only an intrusion. He's a disturbance to them. All of a sudden, you have to keep quiet, and you can't pass all the gossip around. Is this a place so, where you could let your sense of humor so, come so out? So, if the rabbi was missing or passed away, they'd be much happier. However, if he's a capable rabbi, he has to try to find a way to mesh that need of the people for gossip. And, uh, and entertainment, and also at the same time slip some significance into his messages because he's morally obligated to do it, to teach them and preach to them about something moral, uh, meaningful, about the life of, of the hereafter, about, about more profound thoughts and ideas of why we're here on this earth. But if he just stays that serious, philosophical, and religious, 
he'll lose the whole congregation in an hour and a half. He'll be talking to himself and everybody will be sleeping in the place. He'll place become a bedroom and instead of a congregation if he gets that serious. So he has to try to be entertaining and the most effective rabbis always try to bring it down to the common denominator and try to talk about things that interest them in terms and in ways that will entertain them at the same time that he delivers his point. So you told some jokes. Right. <laughs> and the joke got better and better, then I started to charge a cover at a minimum. <laughs> That's a joke for my act. Right, right. And my guest is Jackie Mason, who has a very big hit called The World According to Me. And uh, there's also a book called The World According to Me that features uh, some of his material from that show, and it's just been published by Simon & Schuster. You, um, you got your start as a, a comic in the Borscht Belt, in the, the Jewish resort hotels of the Catskill Mountains in, in New York. The The... The Borscht Belt always had comic headliners, and um, right. I wonder why you think that, that there are so many Jewish comics and why Jewish audiences really love comics so much. That's uh, also a very good question. I'm, I'm really surprised you're this intelligent a person. I never heard this about you. Listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> I almost heard you laugh again. It's not easy. Listen to the, the reason that Jews are so fascinated with comedy, in my opinion, is because Jews were always felt like a beleaguered minority always felt like they were being persecuted, and as a matter of fact, always were being persecuted. And when you can't fight back and there's no way out of your misery and the problems of, that you're suffering from, you try to make life more bearable by telling some jokes to each other, by trying to be funny, by trying to find humor in the situation. People need an escape. Uh, let's be honest about it. There's a very... Uh, a lot of studies have been made about the times when, when, when the movies are most popular. And they found movies are most popular in the Depression periods, when people need escape the most. Now, ostensibly, uh, people go for entertainment when they have more money and when times are better. That's what people thought. But when they made a study of it, they found exactly the opposite is true, that people go to the movies more when times are worse. Um, well, you told us that you had really never seen comics and hadn't been in nightclubs until you, st until you started performing yourself. Once you started performing, I'm sure you started seeing um, other Jewish comics like Myron Cohn, who was uh, considerably older than, than you. Um, how, how did you think you compared to the older generation of Jewish comics who had a lot of Yiddish material in their act? I'll be honest with you. It's a misnomer to imagine that I have Jewish material in my act, because I don't. I sound so Jewish that people think I'm talking Jewish. <laughs> then they imagine I'm talking about Jewish subjects. The fact of the matter is I'm talking about nothing that has anything to do with Jewishness. It's just that I'm so Jewish, you got mesmerized into thinking I'm telling you Jewish jokes. But you, but use, a, you use Yiddish in, in your material. I, do, I definitely don't. Oh, wait, wait, wait. How about Miklutzmir? Uh, Did I say that right? <laughs> that's a meaningless uh, little expression that I uh -huh. might use. It's a, it's a meaningless word that I just use as an expression. And, uh, and you find maybe two Jewish expressions in two hours of my, of my performance. None of my jokes are in Jewish, and none of my subject matter is particularly Jewish. I talk about life in general. Uh, sometimes I talk about how Jews behave compared to Gentiles. Or, uh, there's a lot of ethnic uh, comedy in my, in my jokes. But the ethnic comedy is about the difference in people's behavior patterns in accordance to their ethnic backgrounds, which is basically a sociological study. It's not uh, in any way a Jewish uh, approach to comedy. I don't tell jokes about Jews like in the same sense that Myron Cohen does, with, with depicting the typical Jewish character and using a Jewish accent to express a Jewish personality. I just happen to talk with an accent. One of the very funny things you say in your show is that um, you're comparing Gentile and Jewish uh, audience reactions to your show, and you say that the Gentiles see, see the show and they say, it's a hit, and the Jews see the show and they say, it's too Jewish. Right. Is this a typical reaction that you get? 
it's, it's, I don't know if it's typical, but it's certainly pretty common because the Jews, as I say in my act, are very self-conscious about being Jewish. I say they suffer from a terrible conflict uh, constantly. They like to tell you how proud they are to be Jewish, but if a person is so proud, why would he cut off his name and his nose? Jews cut off their names and noses more than any other denomination in the world at the same time that they tell you with such pride about how Jewish they are. If you're so proud, I, I don't notice Italians cutting off their names. If a, if a guy, if he's Italian and his name is Manjapani, he doesn't call himself Manj, he's Manjapani. You don't hear a, a, a Polish person whose name is Askarachowicz all of a sudden call him Ashkapa. He's Ashkapachowicz, whatever his name is. But as soon as a Jew is named Goldberg, he becomes gold, then he becomes good, then he becomes <laughs> he, he, he doesn't want to have too much of a name that should sound Jewish. Uh, Jewish women are notoriously embarrassed and, uh, and disturbed. They even get nauseous if you tell them they look Jewish. You tell a Gentile girl she looks Jewish, she thinks, well, that sounds continental. It's, you tell it to a Jewish girl, I look Jewish. She wants to pass away in a second. My guest is Jackie Mason. Um, right. Let's talk about 1964 when you did the the now famous uh, Ed Sullivan show, and uh, um, he was you were in the middle of your routine. He was gesturing you to get off because he had just gotten word that the president was going to make a short speech, and it was going to interrupt the program. So he was gesturing you to get off, and you were gesturing him with the same kind of fingers he was giving you. He later said that you gave him the finger. You denied it. There was almost a suit and a countersuit. But, um, anyways, what went through your mind when he was giving you the signals to get off? Oh, you do a lot of homework. You'd have I watched to... the show, didn't you? Oh, you watched the well, show at that all time? All of America was watching the Ed Sullivan show then, oh, right? Oh, boy. You know everything. You're like an encyclopedia of my career. But the You're not enjoying matter, this interview very much, are you? No, I love it. I love it. I'm getting a kick out of the fact that you pay that much attention. I certainly love it. That's a great compliment that somebody knows that much about you. Anyway, the point is that what happened there, as you just recounted it, is exactly right. That's exactly what did happen. You sound like you just read about it last night. Because the fact is that he misunderstood my gesture because he himself thought that when a guy make, moves a finger, the only thing he himself could think of was a dirty gesture. Because he came from the New York streets, and he knew about dirty gestures. I came from rabbinical institutions all my life, and I never heard of a dirty gesture when I came to his show. I had no idea what it even meant. Now, the proof of the matter is that I was right. I was telling this to people for 20 years, and they, th and they were very cynical when I would say it this way, because they would say, who is he kidding? He didn't know what it meant. He's a phony, because Ed Sullivan called me a fraud, and a liar, and he said that I purposely gave him a filthy gesture. So naturally, if he's the superstar and the symbol of authority in America, and I'm a young budding comedian who doesn't mean that much, they have to assume that I'm the liar and he's telling the truth. And then they even imagined they saw what he told them they saw, a filthy gesture. But just two months ago, on 2020, Barbara Walters replayed that actual scene from the old tape. And when they replayed the tape, they actually went in slow motion following my gesture. I don't know if you saw that particular show. I actually saw that too, yeah. And they proved on television that I never made such a gesture. Barbara Walters said to America, isn't it amazing how a person could be so misunderstood? Oh, you know that... what amazes me? Yes. How you could have performed for, uh, I don't know, five or six years and still not known what the finger was? Because I, I was never performing among... Uh, I didn't even know to this day, I don't even know what the pot looks like or what, uh, or, or what is that thing, a coke. I wouldn't know coke if, if I saw it, if I fell over it. I never mingled with people who talk this way or behave this way, and I still don't. And I was never involved in the street corner type of, uh, of conversation. To this day, I don't tell dirty jokes. I don't use one off-color word, and I never have. 
That's just not my character or my nature. Now, people who live like that, maybe people like you who know from these things, they can't find it hard for you to believe that I don't because I happen to live a much cleaner life than you. Right, well, I guess when the interview's over, I should inform <laughs> you about the things you've been missing out on, right? <laughs> uh, so, so after this... I really don't know from these things. It's not the way I live. So, so after this happened on the Ed Sullivan Show, did you right. feel like you were being blacklisted? I was not being blacklisted, but it really put a bad damper in my career, I can't deny that, because I was a very hot piece of property at that time. I was, seemed to be zooming with a brilliant new career. I was a conversation piece as the new hot comic, or one of the two, three hottest comics in the country. I was not yet a major star, but it looked like I was being offered every major situation that I would inevitably become a major star in a very short order. And all of a sudden, that put a definite crimp in it. All of a sudden, people saw me as some kind of a crazy maniac who can't be trusted. When Ed Sullivan said that this man did a filthy thing, people who watched the show actually thought they saw it, and they never did. But that's amazing uh, power of suggestion. If the chief rabbi of Israel tells all the Jews they're passing away on Thursday, they'll start to think they are. <laughs> My guest is uh, Jackie Mason, and his one-man show is called The World According to Me. The World According to Me is also the title of his new book, which features a lot of the material that he's doing in the show. It's not only a big hit, it's a phenomenal... Uh, unbelievable kind of a happening. People all over the world are coming from China, from Africa. They're coming without clothes because they don't even get a chance to get dressed there in such a hurry to get there. <laughs> well, we'll have more <laughs> adjectives about this show after we take a short break. This is Fresh Air. Fresh Air is produced live from WHYY in Philadelphia and is distributed by National Public Radio. Comedian Jackie Mason is my guest. Since you've been back in New York, have you gone back to your old neighborhood in the Lower East Side of Manhattan? I have been in the neighborhood a couple of times and just rode around a little to look at it. It's a totally different uh, kind of a neighborhood now. It was, the whole world uh, changed there. It used to be mostly very poor, poverty-stricken Jews. Now it's uh, mostly Puerto Rican and uh, Spanish and uh, some black people, and, uh, and they seem to be doing better than the Jews did at that time. Because, thank God, now there's more opportunities to get uh, some help from the government. At that time, there was n almost nothing 30, 40 years ago. D your brothers are still rabbis, even though you left the rabbinate. They're still rabbis. Do you ever go to their services? Yes, I was just there for the high holidays. So do you have to stand up and take a bow in the middle of the <laughs> service? Well, I can't deny that they get pretty excited about me showing up. It's like uh, the boy coming back home, and it, uh, it's... It's a fabulous feeling to see the, how much pleasure they get out of my becoming such a hit. Becoming a hit is a, is a stunning feeling. You always read constantly about some people who can't handle success and how they suffer with success and uh, how it makes them miserable and how some people want to commit suicide who are so successful, how it has an adverse opposite kind of effect on some people. I don't know why and how it could be possible unless the person is terrifically sick, and that person should immediately go for help. It's like if I give you $3 million and you can't enjoy it, <laughs> and the, the, the only thing you could say is that it's making you suffer, then you better run to a doctor immediately. That's a lot worse than a bad case of tonsils. <laughs> you started out without any experience uh, having seen comics. Did comics take you under their wing and, and uh, bring I'll you into the club, so to speak? I'll tell you frankly, I'm not uh, too close to too many comedians. I find that there's too much jealousy among comedians. Uh, uh, 
Uh, this is a very, very insecure, nerve-wracking business. Everybody's on an ego trip that's usually sick to one extent or another. Most people don't become comedians because they want to entertain people. They become comedians because they feel rejected and nervous and helpless. All the studies made about comedians and their personality structure shows that they're all psycho cases. That it's very hard to find a normal comedian, a person who's so desperate for attention that he has to become a comedian. It has to be sick to start with. It has to be a chemical or emotional imbalance. You have to feel terribly rejected in your house, in your home, in your environment. There was a big brother who was ten times smarter. There was a sister who was ten times prettier. You were the one neglected, rejected. You were really short, fat, or ugly, or miserable, nauseous, and disturbed. And you got absolutely nothing to live for. As a desperate move, you take a chance and you become a comedian. That's how most comedians start. And all the studies make of their character, their personalities proves that they almost always start from a warped position of a sick personality. And, and then the answer to a terrible personality problem and a terrible feeling of total rejection is to either hide completely or to go in exactly the opposite direction. You either be, it's like the old story. From one family, you either become a murderer or a judge. One brother becomes a murderer, the next one a judge from the same family. And people say, why? It's because both people needed something extreme to overcome the, the misery of their circumstances. A comedian is in a very extreme way of looking for attention. You know how sick you have to be to go up on a stage in Iowa with the people that never heard of you, and you're 19 or 22 years old, and you have to beg people to laugh at you with jokes that are not finished yet, and feel all the rejection and the contempt that people have for a person who's wasting their time not being funny. If you sing a song and it stinks, nobody notices it because they heard of the song, it's close enough, it's better than nothing. But if you hear a joke you never heard before and it stinks, you're wasting the guy's time and the guy is getting nauseous and he wants to throw a chair at you. Is this and, a way of saying <laughs> that, that, that you've been a psycho case yourself and that's right. why you're a comedian? That's right. I can't deny it, I certainly am. I always felt rejected in my environment at home. I had three brothers older than me, I always felt left out. The brother right above me was a phenomenal genius. He's an absolute genius. By the time he was nine, he was graduating from four universities. He was getting medals of honor from people that never heard of him. He was sitting around with, with all kinds of medals like a general. And I, and I was the one who nobody noticed. So I started to try to be funny. It's not hard to tell what motivated me to try to look for attention in one way or another and to overcompensate by being the bell of the ball by becoming a comedian because I knew I couldn't compete with him scholastically or intellectually. Do you think you put on a stronger Yiddish accent for your act than you do when you're talking? I have no awareness at all about my accent. As a matter of fact, I never even knew I had an accent. I always concentrated on the substance of the significance of the meaning of the message, of the point that I'm trying to make, of the, of the way to construct the joke, to make it as funny as possible. But it was, all, it was all in the construction of the words and the thoughts and the ideas behind it. It never, it never was involving any kind of, of a style of performance of a style of delivery. I never concentrated on how to, to deliver a joke in terms of, of my words or my moves or my gestures. I never thought of that. The performance element was never involved in my mind at all, and it's still not. You seem to me to be one of the comics who's never had any writers write for them. Is that right? Right. I never did. Well, why? Because I don't need them. <laughs> why don't I have somebody sit down for me? Because I sit down myself. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't I go for somebody to dance for me? I dance myself. <laughs> if this is my business, I don't feel like I need somebody else to do it for me. Not that I'm reflecting against the ones who do. There's nothing wrong with doing, uh, doing words that somebody else wrote. If you could do them effectively and get the same laugh, who says that you have to write it yourself? Nobody does. People play Shakespeare. They don't have to be Shakespeare. 
But I don't find that I, I need somebody else to write for me. I like what I come up with, and I uh, am involved in my own thoughts, and it expresses my own ideas. And one of the pleasures in my mind, as much as performing it, is the thought of it, and I'd like to be the one who thought of it. Well, Jackie Mason, I want to thank you very much for talking with well, us. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. You're a lovely lady. I haven't seen you yet, but uh, I love your attitude and your intelligence of your questioning. Oh, thanks. Lots of people tell me that. Next month, we will have a special investigative report on exploding Zenith televisions. That's no joke. And Jackie Lydon fills us in on the big fashion trend of 1988. In a word, chartreuse. I'm Carrie Thompson, and you're listening to Playback. Playback.